when I would meet with my clients, I would go to their office. It's so much easier on them. It's oh, convenient, yes. right? They're busy. And in one department, I had so many of those professionals as clients, somebody nicknamed me the money lady. <laughs> and so one day I heard, oh, here comes the money lady. So people got to, to see my face and, and to know that so many people knew me, right? And, and of their colleagues or on, that they work with on that floor. And it was so easy to get introduced to people. Like they wanted to introduce me to their coworkers. Hmm. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Leah Alter. And I'm Joanna Arisman. And this is Women Share, a marketing guide for women in financial services. And today we are so excited as we have a phenomenal businesswoman and financial thought leader with us, Lisa Brown, partner and wealth advisor at Coriant. Over her career, she has become the go-to advisor for executives looking for strategic compensation advice, She's offered, authored three books on empowering women financially, hosted a podcast for corporate executives for four years, and is frequently called upon for media interviews and speaking engagements. But on top of all of that, she prioritizes giving back as well. She's very active and involved as a board member for different nonprofit organizations. There are so many things we can learn from Lisa that it was really tough to narrow down our focus for today, but... We'll be talking about how she grew her practice by building a niche within a Fortune 100 company, how she's leveraged thought leadership in her career, and her perspective on helping women clients and her peers in the industry. Lisa, we are so happy to have you. Welcome to Women Share. Thanks, Joanna and Leah. I'm so happy to be here and with your audience today. We are thrilled to have you with us today. So let's just, we're just going to dive right in because we want every, every second of you we can get. So an area you've seen success in growing your practice is really by focusing on executive compensation and specifically how you were able to build a pipeline of executives within a large corporation headquartered near you. Will you share with us what's worked for you in this area, what challenges you've seen along the way, and maybe some key tips or takeaways for our listeners? Sure. So I think it's good to start really from the beginning of my career when I share how I got to where I am and working with executives. So right out of college, I was fortunate to have an opportunity to work uh, for a company called the ACO Company, which is now owned by Goldman Sachs. And they specialized in financial planning and investment management for senior executives of Fortune 500 companies. And so I, that's really where I, I cut my teeth as I entered the wealth management industry was learning how to work with these executives and the complexities of things like what is a stock option? What's deferred compensation? I was pretty sure I was destined to fail. Within a few months of my first job, I had a boss who was a very smart woman, but she had this red pen. And she would take this red pen and make these huge X marks through any of the work that I did preparing for client meetings. But she didn't explain what I did wrong. It was it was just wrong and I needed to, to redo it. So here I am, 22 years old, first job out of college. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm never gonna make it in this field. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, it was the first time in my life that I felt like a failure, a true failure. And so I decided at that point, I better get plan B in action. And so I decided to go 
get my MBA. So I did school, went to grad school part-time at nights while continuing to work full-time. Well, I continued to plow through, you know, stuck with it, tried to learn as much as I could in at this company and then end up moving on a few years later to a different organization. But I found myself kind of constantly going back, gravitating towards the corporate executive type clients during the early part of my career. And it took me many years to realize one of the reasons I like working with corporate executives is because I'm a lot like them. We're very much get to the point, tell me what I need to do. I'm going to get it done and check it off my list. Short and sweet. So because my personality type really jived with a corporate executive, I think that's a big reason why I continue to stick with that type of client. And the longer you work with a particular type of client, the more you know about their tech, not only technically about financially how things should work, but you understand their personalities, you understand what they're looking for. In a 2007, 2008 timeframe, I had uh, an opportunity that really changed the course of my career. I was working for a firm called Brightworth, uh, which is an RIA in Atlanta. And they really grew their company uh, starting back in the 80s by doing retirement planning workshops for the Coca-Cola company. And so by doing these retirement planning seminars, they were able to attract a number of Coca-Cola clients. Now, I was given the opportunity to come alongside one of the founders of Brightworth to do these retirement planning workshops at Coke. So what I knew is that if you're standing in front of a group of people teaching them, you better know what they're ta- what you're talking about. So, <laughs> right. So here I am, a young woman standing in front of these executives trying to talk about their stock options and how deferred comp works and pension strategy and 401k when they retire. So I dove into the summary plan descriptions of all of these company plans, and I figured I'm going to know I need to know this better than anybody else. Because again, if I'm standing in front of people teaching the material, I I have to have a certain level of credibility. I got to the point where I believe I knew Coca-Cola's plans better than their human resources associates did. Wow. And I also got to the point where I could almost anticipate what questions a Coca-Cola client was going to ask me before they asked me, because they were the same ones over and over. So that's that's really the, the core of how I, I started working with executives, but really built my niche with Coca-Cola executives uh, over a number of years. And there was one more pivotal moment in my building my business and working with executives. And that came about 10 years ago when Coca-Cola was having a large round of layoffs. I got wind that this uh, these these downsizings were going to happen through my relationships with my contacts there at Human Resources. And so I wrote a 10-page white paper called uh, Preparing, uh, I'm sorry, What to Do if You Receive a Severance Package at the Coca-Cola Company. I dove into the severance plan. I figured out what all the important details were, and I put it together in a 10-page white paper. When somebody received their severance package from Coca-Cola that following year, the number of pages in the severance booklet that they received from the company was about 140. It's a 140 page booklet. I had this 10 page white paper. So you can imagine my white paper spread like a wildfire through the hallways and people, again, you have to know your audience. These are busy executives. They don't have time to read a 140 page 
booklet. It's overwhelming, but a 10-page document that synthesizes the major points, that was pretty attractive. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I have questions about this because in past role, it'd be at organizations and advisors would say, hey, large local employer is doing layoffs, marketing, go do your thing. So specifically, how did you circulate the white paper? And then on the like seminar and education side of the coin, were you, did you have a formal relationship where, you know, you were an approved provider with the HR department or was it, I'm just so curious about structurally how you did this. Um, well, coincidentally, yeah. we were, were booted from doing the retirement planning workshops around 2012, not because we weren't doing a good job because interestingly, Coca-Cola hired ACO to come ah. in and provide these workshops. So full circle you know, moment. Comes, <laughs> kind of comes full circle, right? Yeah. Um, however, we had built so many relationships at Coca-Cola through the years that not being able to be invited back to do these workshops, it didn't stop our business. It didn't slow down our business. It, these white papers really boosted our business. And I think another differential too is we are a boutique firm. And so some of the executives, although they could call the 800 number service that, that Coca-Cola was, was now providing, uh, a number of them said, you know, that I want something more personal. I want mm -hmm. something that's maybe a little more sophisticated, or at least that, you know, that was their perception at the time. So the retirement planning workshop stopped over a decade ago. But again, that, that certainly didn't slow down our business at all. I'll tell you a funny story about, and I'll answer your question about how I spread the white paper there was a time when I was visiting clients at Coca-Cola and doing their you know, financial update meetings so frequently that uh, one day in July, uh, I, I, was, I was stopped by security and they said, I'm sorry, ma'am, we can't let, let you into the building today. And I said, well, why is that? I've, I've been here you know, every day for the past couple of weeks. And they said, you have exceeded the number of times you're allowed to be a visitor on campus. <laughs> We now need to get you registered as a contractor with the company. So I had to fill out some paperwork. One of my clients sponsored me, you know, as a contractor. Next thing you know, I get a badge to swipe myself in and out of the building, in and out of the parking deck. And I essentially worked from Coca-Cola's headquarters for, for the rest of that year. I, I, I barely came back to my normal office at Brightworth. And the best place to meet new people, well, actually twofold. Number one, I would say is the salad bar line in the cafeteria. So I would go eat lunch in the cafeteria every day and I'd hang out the salad bar line and go through the line slowly. You won't believe how many people you meet that way. Also, when I would meet with my clients, I would go to their office. It's so much easier on them. It's oh, convenient, yes. right? They're busy. And in one department, I had so many of those professionals as clients, somebody nicknamed me the money lady. <laughs> and so one day I heard, oh, here comes the money lady. So people got to, to see my face and, and to know that so many people knew me, right? And, and of their colleagues or on, that they work with on that floor. And it was so easy to get introduced to people. Like they wanted to introduce me to their coworkers. Hmm. Now, granted, I had to serve them well. They had to have a good experience with me to want to do that for sure. But a big key to my, my success is to go where my clients were, go where my prospective clients were, make it easy for them 
to meet with me, make it easy for them to work with me. In terms of spreading the white paper, I started with my clients and I said, if you, if you know somebody who's being impacted by the severance package, I want you to know we've developed this educational resource. You are welcome to pass it along. If you know somebody, that was the phrase I used. Well, it got passed along. And um, I think I onboarded that year, personally onboarded at least 25 new clients in about a six month period, which, you know, it, it, with a million dollar investment minimum at our firm, right? That's a lot. That's a lot of people to be onboarding in a short yeah. amount of time. It's funny, you know, you say it out loud and it all seems very like, well, of course that makes sense. But I don't, I haven't seen a lot of people actually putting that into practice of being in the office so much where you get the hallway introductions or you become the known face, right? And that, that level of trust and credibility is so important in a financial relationship, plus social proof, right? Like who wouldn't want to work with the person who is partnering with a bunch of people at Coca-Cola? So, right. Well, and the nickname being the money lady, right? You're like, I want the money lady. (laughs) That's right. You know, it, it was essentially like my clients were doing my marketing for me. Right. Yeah. It was, it was a phenomenal place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And for any advisor listening who is asking marketing, like, can't you just buy the list of employees at this organization and market to them? The answer is no. But take Lisa's advice. <laughs> Joanna, I would, I would say one more thing to those advisors yeah. who say, hey, marketing, can you go get me a list? When you can show a prospective client that you get them, that you understand their situation, it does differentiate yourself. So I would recommend anyone who wants to take this approach where you hear that there's a layoff coming at a company, get your hands on the summary plan descriptions, know how the 401k works, know how the stock plan works, you know, be able to speak their lingo as, as advisors know, the plan rules often change when you go under severance versus if you retire from a company versus if you leave voluntarily. So keep that in mind that the the rules of the road for when you leave a company, what happens when you retire are often very different than the rules of the road when you receive a severance package. But in most cases, there is a document the company will produce that lays out the nuances of that severance package. Get your hands on that as soon as you can dive in, figure it out, And the marketing will come easy at that point because you can start using the lingo that these executives are familiar with. So smart. So smart. Love it. Okay. So now the other, well, I think your success is multifaceted, but would love to hear from you more about your thought leadership strategy. So as an author, a speaker, a spokesperson in the media, tell us how you came to start putting your work out there in that fashion and how you've seen that impact your business and your personal brand. When I first started at Brightworth in 2005, we were putting out this really nice glossy newsletter every quarter and mailing it to clients. I think it was like 1500 households got this newsletter. And I would start offering some articles that I could contribute. And one day one of the managing partners came to me and he said, Lisa, I want I want to let you know For the first time ever in the firm's history, we're going to run an article on the cover of this newsletter that was not written by a partner. So I was not a partner at the time. And that was kind of the first time that I realized that I may have a gift for writing. 
And a few years later, another partner said to actually asked me, where do you get your gift for writing? And I kind of looked at him and I said, well, I didn't realize I had a gift, but both my parents were teachers. You know, maybe that was it. So it actually took other people recognizing that I had a skill and a talent in writing for me to then realize, well, maybe I should do more of this. If this is different about me, maybe I can leverage this. So I did start writing a lot more articles. We had um, a, a PR uh, individual that we had hired as a consultant with our firm who helped uh, get my articles into Kiplinger. And I kept them pretty targeted around topics that matter to work to working executives. So I tried to stay very focused in my niche. And I would try to do things where let's say I was getting the same question three or four times a week from 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 clients. I'd say, OK, this is a hot topic, right? It's, they, they, the people will kind of tell you what they want to hear about. So it wasn't hard for me to come up with these ideas because I would write articles based on conversations I was having with clients already. And so I, I had a, a column in Kiplinger for many years. This uh, PR consultant that we used had a few relationships with media in New York City. Interestingly, the very first month we worked with them, um, he landed me a spot in the New York Times where they flew down, a reporter flew down our office and like took these pictures of me and er interviewed me on the topic of severance. And um, he kind of laughed. He said, Lisa, like we just hit the ball out of the park. I can't believe it, you know, first month into our relationship, don't expect it to happen again. <laughs> <laughs> Managing expectations, but it was really cool. So, you know, my expertise with executives and really understanding severance packages was something the media was interested in. And I landed a spot in the Wall Street Journal with my expertise in executives. So it's been it's been very corporate executive focus that the media has been interested in hearing from me, running my articles or interviewing me. And so, again, I've, I've kept it very focused. Now, pivoting a little bit, this has nothing to do with corporate executives. In 2015, I started to get the string of phone calls from women in their 40s and 50s, and they received my name from so-and-so, and they were either recently divorced or widowed at a young age. And all of these women had, had received or inherited a pile of money. And some of these piles were bigger than others. All of these women were absolutely petrified to make any decision with this pile of money. And what I found was growing up, none of these women had received any sort of financial education. Daddy took care of the money, and then they got married and husband took care of the money. And now they were suddenly thrust in, into a position of responsibility for money that they had never been in before. So they were scared. And so I typically do my best thinking when I'm exercising and I was out running one morning and I just, I was so frustrated by this trend that I was seeing with these women. And it just dawned on me, you know, instead of being frustrated by it, Lisa, why don't you go do something about it? And so that's why I decided to write a book for women to lay out the basics of what women need to know about finances. And so I never thought I would write a book, but I realized this really needs to be a book. So I originally uh, wrote my manuscript and I provided money advice for girls starting at age 13, you know, kind of when you get your babysitting job or, you know, maybe a lifeguarding job as a teenager, first time you were making money. And I wrote the book with lessons for women up through the uh, end of age 30 in their, in their late thirties. Now, Knowing I had never written a book before, I was smart enough to know I need to go hire some professional help to figure out how do I publish this darn thing. 
make sure it's edited correctly, formatted correctly. And I got some really great advice um, from hiring a professional editor. She said, you know, you really need to narrow your audience down. You're trying to cover too much in, in one book. So that's how I targeted advice in my first book, Girl Talk Money Talk, The Smart Girl's Guide to Money After College for women in their 20s and 30s. And it takes them through all the big first right after college. First job, first 401k, first time having to file a tax return, first mortgage, first car payment, first marriage, first baby, first time I have to think about quitting my job and possibly being a full-time mom. So it walks women through all of those big aspects. And I knew I needed to continue this on for women uh, at, at later stages in life. And so I had committed in my first book that I would write another book <laughs> for women. And I did. <laughs> it's like, if you put it out there, you, you know, it's got to happen. So um, first book was published su summer of 2019. Second book was published summer of 2021. So almost two years to the day after. And the second book is Girl Talk Money Talk 2 financially fit and fabulous in your forties and fifties. Hmm. I had a sense that the second book was going to open some doors for me in terms of getting me in front of speaking in front of women's groups or other organizations. You know, a lot of companies have um, women's initiatives, women's affinity groups. Yep. And so I have got a, a number of speaking engagements as a result of my second book where companies bring me in to speak to uh, on the topic of financial wellness to their female um, employee base. And that's been very rewarding for me. I've been really, really enjoyed that. It, it, it's an interesting intersection between writing the books for women and bringing me back into corporate America, but through a different door. Um, so uh, not something I had initially planned on, but have woven my way to, to use these two specialties that I have really, you know, in, in the same tone of voice. That's really, that's really just so interesting. And I, I feel like you've made so many smart moves throughout your career. It's really, it's really inspiring to hear your stories and how they all kind of intertwine. And um, that being said, we, you know, you, you mentioned you entered the industry at 22 and you've spent basically the whole of your career in the industry. What are some things that you've seen over the years as a woman, how things are evolving for women in the industry? So I've been in this industry almost 25 years, and there still is a shortage of women in this industry. Uh, it has not improved. That's been a little surprising. However, I have felt like it's been more of a benefit to me at times than a disadvantage. So I'm very used to being the only woman in the room in, in you know, internal meetings. From time to time, a prospective client may call into the office or, or speak with somebody to say, I'd really like to, to work with a female advisor. Don't often hear somebody saying, I'm calling specifically to work with a male advisor, you know, right. right or wrong. Right. <laughs> um, I've never marketed myself as hire me because I'm a woman. And hey, if you're a woman, I get you. And in fact, that um, I've, I've stayed away from that intentionally over the course of my career. I I tend to get along really, really well with my male clients, and and I have several female executive clients as well. But I definitely have a lot more male clients than I do female. I believe everybody needs a financial education, and uh, everybody comes from it from a, from a different you know point of view. So I'd rather work with personalities that I like rather than the gender. 
So over the course of, of my career, again, I've not seen more women entering the industry or more women in, in the room. But again, I don't think that's been a, a disadvantage for me. And I don't think it'll be a disadvantage for other women. It is interesting, though, the phenomenon of, yeah, that it is stagnant. We've got some discussions and things we're looking at of like, what is going on here? And I think it's it's so, um, there are obviously many dynamics at play. And I, I to your point of, there aren't many people who call in and, and say, I'm looking for a male advisor. Quite frankly, it's probably because that's the assumption of like, it's right. the table stakes, right? right? Like, so. Well, and I think that the change really comes the more we talk about it, the more yeah. light we shine on it. And so having these conversations, I mean, that's why we have this podcast. That's why this is so important to us because we want to shine a line on it, a light mm-hmm. on it. One question we like to ask every guest on the show is what's the best career advice you've received? The best career advice is to never give up your book of business. So those who manage revenue in our business have the power and the control. It's also job security. I've had opportunities during my career and I've, and I've pursued uh, leadership roles within the company, but I've never stopped working with clients. So maybe I've worked a little more at times, a little less at times, but I've never completely transitioned all of my clients to others. And I've watched our CEOs over over the course of my time at this company do the same thing. They might be leading the company, but they've never totally given up their client relationships. So I I would recommend anyone in this business. And and there's times where I think people will have certain career opportunities where they'll say, gosh, if I I could go in this direction, I think I would really like it. I would always say think twice if you're being asked to, to give up your client base, because it probably took you a while to build it and build it well. And if you need to start over at some point and rebuild it because you didn't like said chosen career trajectory that you put yourself on, that it can be, it can take a while to build back up. So smart. Be strategic about <laughs> that growth. Yeah. Both ways. Well, and you're also, I mean, you, you practice what you preach, right? Like mm-hmm. I was just saying, you've been so strategic in the moves that you've made, the decisions you've made, the focus you've had on your business. That's obviously worked very well. All right, Lisa, this has been such an interesting conversation. And if somebody wants to find out more about you or connect with you, buy your books, where can they do all of that? So I always tell people the best way to get in touch with me, or if you want to learn any more about some of the articles I've written or read more about that, um, is LinkedIn. Lisa Brown CFP is my handle. That's the only social media platform that I use. I'm very intentional on uh, what I say and how I say it on LinkedIn. And so I would recommend for anybody, if you're using social media, try to keep it very focused because that's part of your personal brand and building your personal brand. So LinkedIn is the best way to get in touch with me. My books are found on Amazon as well as uh, Barnes and Noble and Target's website. And I also have a, a, a website for my books, girltalkmoneytalk.com. And um, actually working on my fourth book right now, which I hope to release in the next year or so, it's going to be a mentoring book for young to mid-career women, where um, over the last couple of years, I've interviewed several dozen women about their journey towards success and when they tripped and stumbled and had to pick themselves back up. So I'm looking forward to that being the next phase of the you know education that I can hopefully provide to younger women in any industry. 
Oh, that's oh, wonderful. I cannot wait to get my hands on that one. You might have to come back for another conversation yes, just or on it. that. Yes. Well, and uh, for those listening, we'll make sure the links are all available on this episode and we'll be tagging you and the women share social posts as well. So yeah, Lisa, thank you. Thank you for being here. This has been such an interesting conversation. And I think I just am so grateful that you were very specific and actionable. Like, here's what I did because we think empowering others, right, to to take action and learn from your best practices is so important. So if ours is a mission that you want to share in, we ask that you subscribe to Women Share on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you don't miss an episode. And with that, I'm Joanna Ayersman. And also, don't forget, we have an amazing email subscriber list. You can get on that list by visiting womensharepodcast.com. You can sign up for the mailing list right on the front of our website. I am Leah Alter, and we will catch you on the next episode of Women Share.